Hi, I'm Dan Butler and welcome to a special episode of Think Digital Futures. The Australian Human Rights Commission, partly in collaboration with the University of Technology's Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion, is currently undertaking a major project. Given the Commission's highly publicised stances in recent years on the rights of refugees and the Racial Discrimination Act, their current work might not at first seem as relevant to human rights, namely technology. We're in the middle of a revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. Much like those earlier iterations, this revolution is on course to fundamentally alter our world. But unlike loom machines or the steam train, today's new tech has the potential to create unprecedented, perhaps universal disruption. Our traditional structures are under stress. Witness the threat social media poses to our very democratic processes. Our human rights are not immune from these challenges. I sat down with the Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, to discuss some of these challenges, the implications of facial recognition technology and AI more broadly, how tech could empower or disenfranchise people with disabilities, to the terrifying concept of predictive policing. Enjoy the show. The thing about an exponential curve is that we tend to focus on the right-hand side of the curve where it starts to go kind of vertical. Uh, the, the the change that we're seeing um, so far has been exponential, but it's been on kind of on the left-hand side of the curve where it's impressive in, in terms of the scale of change, um, but it hasn't yet um, kind of gone vertical. Uh, a lot of the experts in this space, and I wouldn't claim to be one of those, uh, saying that, uh, that, that you know, if, if we're finding it difficult to cope with change now, we're only just seeing the beginning of it. In fact, um, now is going to be the slowest pace of change going forward. So we, we really need to grapple with what that means in a really practical way. And that's really saying something, isn't it? I mean, most of us look around at the moment and say, God, look at our modern age. Uh, to think that that is but the, the, the small end of the curve is pretty shocking. Absolutely. So then, the the natural question, are we prepared? Look, to some extent we are. I mean, I think uh, humans are really resilient. We've proven that over uh, millennia. And uh, sometimes um, we can overthink um, risks. Uh, in other words, humans have very good coping skills. And so when we're facing a practical problem... On the whole, we tend to rise to the challenge. When we're facing an abstract problem, um, we we it tends to loom really large, but that's not universally the case. Uh, climate change is a really good example of we're, we're seeing it all around us, um, but we haven't yet taken um, you know the, the steps that we need to do to uh, address um, though that that problem, that, that massive problem. Um, by contrast, there are other massive problems that we've addressed really, really well. And so we're, we're truly at a crossroads. We, we really need to make a decision about how we're going to move forward and whether we're going to uh, be honest and open about seeing both the problems associated with the fourth industrial revolution, as well as the opportunities and, and be clear-eyed at addressing those problems. I wonder if we could go through what what some of those problems might be what are some of the most common concerns that 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 you have that the commission has that people should have so we've done this really extensive 
public consultation where we've uh, spoken, of course, to experts and people who provide services inside government, tech companies, civil society organisations and others. But we've also spoken to just ordinary members of the community. And there's a really, really interesting strand that has come out of that consultation really strongly. And that is that people are saying that they're just starting to understand that their personal information can be used against them. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, it's a really profound idea. It's not some narrow understanding of privacy where, you know, you may want to live a more secluded life. It's something much, much more fundamental. It's essentially saying that a whole range of human rights and potentially all human rights can be positively or negatively affected. So um, when we talk about AI and a concept like algorithmic bias, that really gets to whether someone is discriminated against on the basis of something they can't control, like their race or their age or their gender or their sexual orientation. And I think what our community is starting to understand is some of the most deep-seated risks are those that, that really go to the extent to which we, we have a, an equal community. Um, uh, just uh, speaking there about the the value of um of of personal data and algorithm bias and all that sort of thing. Uh, if we can bring that back to say a concrete example, just recently we've had the um the facial recognition uh, bill before government that was uh sent back for a redraft. Um, uh, I find that interesting for a number of points. One the fact of a nationally created facial recognition database to uh, that it was sent back for a redraft. It seems like the care is not being taken with a hugely pervasive piece of technology. Yeah, so this is a federal bill. Um, well, there are two bills actually, but the main one is known as the Identity Matching Services Bill. And perhaps the best known aspect of that is a um, legal framework that would essentially allow mass surveillance in Australia for the first time in our history. And it would do so in a quite a complex way, and I'm happy not to go into the complexity. But but the, the bottom line is that uh, facial recognition technology can be used for all kinds of purposes. Uh, but we do know that there are some weak points associated with facial recognition. Um, one is that, as of 2019, it is less accurate than probably anyone you know. Um, so uh, it, it makes uh, errors uh, frequently. And we saw that um, when uh, the London Metropolitan Police uh, ran a trial of uh, facial recognition on a database of photos where uh, they were suspects of, of crime, but they didn't know the identities. And they found 104 matches, but 102 of those matches were incorrect. In other words, false positives, a 98% error rate, um, which, is, which is incredibly high. Um, now, th- there are all kinds of ways to explain away some of those errors, but, but at, the, at the base, we've got to accept that, that that's quite a high error, error rate. But secondly, those errors are not evenly distributed. So I am a white, middle-aged man. Uh, facial recognition technology is particularly good at um, recognising the faces of people who look like me. Um, but if you don't happen to meet that description it is much less accurate. And that's because uh, facial recognition technology tends to be um, trained on photographs of that, that, that are kind of disproportionately represented by, by um, white men. Um, so if you happen to be a person of colour 
or a woman or a person with a physical disability or, or, or anyone in, in, in those sorts of categories, then you're much more likely to be um, affected by error when it comes to facial recognition. And when you think about um, the use of facial recognition in a situation where the stakes are really high and policing um, is clearly a context where the stakes in human rights terms are very high, then we should be really worried about that because we know uh, that people of colour, for example, um, have uh, traditionally um, felt quite legitimately unfairly targeted uh, by um, the police and um, this could exacerbate that historical problem. A brief note here before we go on. The Commissioner and I are about to discuss the STMP, or the Suspect Target Management Plan. It's an algorithm used by New South Wales Police that places people they consider to be risks under increased police surveillance. It marks a shift away from traditional policing, where a crime is committed and police look for the perpetrator. Instead, the STMP seeks to anticipate crime by focusing resources on people before they commit a crime. The human rights implications here should be clear. The concept of predictive policing, that must be anathema to your work. Well, I mean, there's certainly some real dangers between uh, when you kind of slip between saying, well, we're going to um, target police resources where they're needed most and actually profiling groups in our community based on things like their race. Uh, the, the problem with the Suspect Target Management Plan, which is a New South Wales police initiative, uh, is that uh, it targets young people um, who haven't necessarily committed serious crimes or even been um, convicted of committing serious crimes. Uh, and um, it, it, it targets them for very, very close monitoring by police. Um, and as a lawyer who's represented some of those young people in the past prior to this job, um, I, I know how much young people um, find that a very, very difficult experience. Um, now, what we found with the Suspect Target Management Plan, uh, eventually you know, this, this material came out in the New South Wales Parliament, was that of the, um, the 1,800 or so young people on that list, 56% of them were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And when you think that less than 3% of the New South Wales population is Indigenous, um, then something must have gone wrong. Now, we know that there's an algorithm that determines who's on the suspect target management plan. We don't, we don't know much more beyond that, but it suggests to me that there is a problem when you have such a high proportion of our population who, um, who are Indigenous uh, who, who are on that um, list. And we also know that Indigenous people historically have been over-targeted by police, um, have been essentially convicted of crimes of poverty and, and so on. So if what is happening is that the algorithm is trawling through that historical criminal justice data and learning logically but wrongly that um, from, from that data, that, that, that you know, data which is subject to historical prejudice that Indigenous people are more likely to commit crimes, then of course the algorithm is going to throw up more and more Indigenous uh, people to go on that um, list for targeting. And that's something that deeply concerns us. Um, uh, if we can uh, shift focus a, a little bit, um, uh, I spoke to a, a person who works in disability technology uh, research yesterday 
Simon uh, Simon Darcy, I think he contributed to the UTS um, submission. He said that uh, he, um, uh, disability complaints to the Human Rights Commission account for something like 40% of all complaints. Um, it's uh, an area ripe for discussion when it comes to technology. It, it represents, um, can represent such a level of um, uh, emancipation, um, but also, as we've discussed, further exclusion. What are some of the biggest issues for you when it comes to, to disability, human rights and technology? Well, you're spot on. Uh, for many, many years, um, complaints under the Disability Discrimination Act have been the single largest source of uh, complaints under anti-discrimination law uh, at the federal level, but also in the states and territories. Uh, we, we know that that's the biggest source of uh, discrimination in Australia. Um, the, the, the challenge is, I think, exactly as you describe it. So there are some new technologies, and again, AI is, is at the centre of a lot of it, that can actually make our community more inclusive. Um, and, and, and sometimes in ways that are truly life-changing, breathtaking. So there are applications you can get on just an ordinary smartphone that someone who's blind or has a vision impairment can, can hold up their smartphone um, and it will tell them what is around them. Now, that is basically the same technology that I was just, um, you know, talking about the, the risks um, in respect of. Um, so that's, that's facial visual recognition technology. Um, when it is used well and carefully, it can be life-changing in a really, really positive way. But we also know that uh, not everyone has access to some of these technologies uh, and that um, disadvantage tends to be heaped on disadvantage. So people with disability, for example, tend to um, have lower access to uh, new technology products and services than others. But also sometimes uh, you know, items of new technology are designed in ways that uh, usually, um, not, not deliberately, but, but in effect, um, shut out parts of our community. We've seen more and more that people with disability can be shut out of access to um, new technologies all the time. Now, that, that's a problem on its own. But as um, basically we, we, we come to access um, almost all uh, services and, and, and core things to just, just living a normal life through technology, then it suddenly becomes an even bigger issue that we need to confront. Um. How do we? It seems that once these sort of technologies um, hit the market, it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit late. Where do you see uh, some of the biggest safeguards for human rights coming from? Legislation, um, litigation, <laughs> or 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 development, engineering, um, the the development of the, of the products. So I'm really grateful to my colleague, Dr. Ben Gauntland, the uh, Disability Discrimination Commissioner and his team. And I'm working really, really closely with Ben on this. We're both lawyers, which is um, something I've just outed myself and him on uh, publicly. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we lawyers don't really like to admit, uh, but it's true, is that once a uh, human rights dispute goes to court, then in a sense you've you've already lost half the battle because the ability of a court 
to put you back in the place you would have been in had your human rights not been violated is limited. Like, how much money will it take to restore your dignity if you've been denied a service because of your dis- disability? M- money may well help, but it, it, it's not a perfect uh, remedy for the disease. And so uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's critically important that we design uh, new technology products really, really well and mindfully to protect people's basic human rights. And that's why there's this new trend towards, and it's a really positive trend, towards design-led approaches. So in the accessibility or disability space, they tend to focus especially on what's known as universal or inclusive design principles. And they tend to uh, say something really interesting and perhaps surprising. And that is the old-fashioned way of designing a new product is to focus on people who are, so to speak, in the fat of the curve. If you imagine a a bell curve right in the middle of the curve, so people who are able-bodied, who are kind of, you know, between the ages of 25 to 50 and who have all of the advantages of the community going for them uh, because that's seen to be the mainstream. So you you design for those people and then you kind of work out how to deal with so-called edge cases after that. So that's the old-fashioned way of dealing with it, but it can obviously lock people out because you're uh, only paying secondary regard to, for example, people with disability if you're paying them any regard at all. What inclusive or universal design does is it says, let's think about this a bit more carefully. If you think right at the early stages of an R&D process about people who might have previously been thought to be edge cases, so people with disability, uh, older people, young people and others that will be really useful because you'll design your product in a way that those people can access but it also has a really interesting secondary benefit and that is you tend to uh, design the product in a way that is simpler for everyone to use so it tends to be more intuitive uh, you know, it, it tends to reduce some of the complexities and complications that uh, end users consumers, in other words, find annoying or difficult uh, to navigate. And so there's, it's, it's the right thing to do. We'd also say it's, it's the thing to do that you should, you know, that, that makes it most likely that you'll comply with the law. But there's also this enlightened self-interest benefit in taking that approach. And that's why we're really attracted to some of those design-led approaches. Mm. Just to loop back a little bit to the, to the beginning, I've heard you say before that um, pri- privacy concerns are not necessarily your, your greatest concern when it comes to, to, to human rights and technology. Why is that? Well, of course, privacy is a critically important human right. Uh, so I don't want to suggest otherwise. And so far, when people have raised the you know, human rights implications of AI, tended to go to privacy concerns, and, and, and that's legitimate. But I think what we've done is uh, looked at those privacy concerns, sometimes to the exclusion of all of the other human rights that are implicated. And so that's why, in particular, taking the anti-discrimination um, legislation that we already have in Australia, thinking about how AI uh, can actually engage those other rights as equality rights is critically important. And if you loop back to what we were talking about when uh, we're talking about facial recognition in the context of policing, so one problem would be 
you know, if if someone, a person of colour, is basically more likely to be uh, falsely or unlawfully arrested and detained. But but think about um, taking that to the next stage. So if that person is then prosecuted, then a range of other rights would be uh, infringed as well. So potentially their right to a fair trial, their right not to be detained unlawfully on a, a longer term basis and so on. And so I think one of the really important things that we as a, as a community are doing now is looking in more forensic detail at what AI truly means for us as a community and in particular thinking about how it engages a range of other rights in addition to privacy. I think we in Australia have an opportunity. We are a liberal democracy. Uh, We have strong uh, institutional adherence to human rights. We are far from perfect. I'm the first one to acknowledge that. But but we should also be proud of the fact that we take principles like the fair go and equality really seriously. I think if we are known to innovate in a way that is consistent with those liberal democratic values, those human rights values, then I think that will be the morally right thing to do. But I also think it provides an opportunity for us to create a niche where we as a country are known for innovating in a way that is essentially, um, you know, equal, fair, that, that, that takes those things really seriously. And I think it's, it's in our interest because our citizens, who are also consumers, are increasingly demanding that those sorts of protections against harm are baked into the tech products that they want to buy. Thanks for listening. This episode of Think Digital Futures was made with the support of the University of Technology. Thanks for listening. This episode of Think Digital Futures was made with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio here in Sydney. It was made on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation. If you liked the episode, subscribe to our podcast and maybe leave us a review so others can find us. I'm Dan Butler. Till next time.